Hi, my name is Matthew Wilson, and this is part three of a mini-series going through the different views on the millennium. Uh, in the first video, I discussed how people have understood the genres of Revelation, the different interpretive approaches to Revelation, and I gave a quick introduction to the views of the millennium. And we learned uh, that how one understands the genre of Revelation affects the interpretive approach one takes to the book. In the second video, I worked through what I think to be some of the best arguments from the pre-millennialist perspective, and I gave brief responses to the arguments from the amillennialist and post-millennialist positions. Um, and in this video, I want to look at the amillennialist position, but before I begin, I just want to briefly recap the other positions, or all the positions, I guess. Uh, the first one and this is the one that I did in the video last time, is premillennialism. And this view holds that uh, Christ will come again before a literal and physical millennial kingdom in which Christ reigns. In other words, Christ's second coming occurs before the millennium. Postmillennialists, they argue that Christ will return after the millennium. And in this view, it's important for us to remember that uh, the postmillennialist understanding of the millennium is not a literal 1,000-year period where Christ reigns on earth, but instead they argue that the millennium is really the present church age where Christ is reigning through the guaranteed gradual success of the gospel in converting the nations. After a certain amount of success, then Christ returns. Lastly, amillennialists, and this is the view that we're going to be looking at today, believe that there will not be a future millennial kingdom and that the present church age represents the intermediate kingdom. And the primary difference between this view and postmillennialism is that amillennialists, they will, or they do expect less success in converting the nations. Uh, they also expect less success in uh, cultures and societies being improved. So when Christ returns, he's going to deliver the church from the pressures and persecutions that are occurring at that time. Uh, so today, as I said before, we're going to look at the amillennialist position. This is the view that I've probably been taught the most in in my past. Um, when I was in when I was taking the class on Revelation last year, the required commentary that we used was uh, G.K. Beals, and he's an amillennialist, and my professor is an amillennialist also, who I'm pretty sure used to be a premillennialist. So this was challenging for me because I would have rather been taught the pre-millennialist position or had a commentary that approached the book more in a futuristic and literal manner. But uh, since I had, or since I was being taught from the uh, the more idealist perspective, I, I bought commentaries to go alongside of it. I basically just uh, compared and contrasted where uh, the, the different views or where the where the commentaries disagreed, and I, I was kind of shocked to see how much disagreement there was, but it was also really interesting to see uh, how much we could agree on in spite of how much there there were disagreements on. So certain the the principle or the takeaway from the passage could still be similar, even though uh, many of the passages were being interpreted so so differently. And in the circles that I'm in, it really seems that most people are moving towards amillennialism. And I think that this is probably a response towards the like left behind series type end time view. Uh, maybe maybe because it, they uh, don't respect symbolism uh, to the extent that many are pushing for today. 
Um, and I don't want to say that um, a more literal approach to Revelation in general gets gets mocked, but I, I do think uh, that it does in some way. At least, at least that's what that's what I've seen more recently. Depending on the circles that you're a part of, obviously. So, anyways, those who hold to this view that are pretty well known are Michael Horton, Robert Strimple, Ian Murray, Sam Storm, or Storms. I think it's Sam Storms, but I'm not sure. And Anthony Hoikma, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but he's he's really solid. And I believe that Vody Bauckham also holds this view. And I've noticed that many Presbyterians are amillennialists, and a lot of Reform guys are too. But in any case, uh, the structure of this video is going to be the same as the last one. I'm going to give three arguments from the amillennialist perspective, and then after each argument, I'll give the responses from the other 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 approaches or other interpretations. And I'm probably going to hold off on like really. Uh, digging in with those responses just because you can get the bigger picture from the other videos that I do. Uh, and if you missed those other ones that I've done so far, I would, I would probably at least skim through them just to get an understanding of, uh, of what's going on. Um, and I'm going to use some terms from specifically video one that I'm probably not going to define in this video. Uh, and I want to remind you that my goal in this series is not to give you absolutely everything, but just to make you somewhat familiar with the other perspectives and and how they understand this passage. And what we're going to see from this or from this from the arguments in from the amillennialist perspective is that uh, it's really a much bigger framework of interpreting many parts of the Bible than then I, I think the premillennialists can can use Revelation as a whole on Revelation 20 uh, with much stronger arguments than the amillennialists can. So the arguments I'm going to present to you from the amillennialist perspective are going to be uh, from places outside of Revelation, though I will deal with one from Revelation that I think is really strong. Uh, and when I give these arguments, I'm going to try and do it from their perspective and present it like they would, uh, because uh, that's just fair. That's really what it comes down to. But anyways, um, I think that amillennialists, they have their strongest arguments in, in their interpretive framework that builds up to an amillennial reading of Revelation 20. And one strong piece of that framework is how they interpret Old Testament prophecy or a general interpretive approach to Old Testament prophecy. And I'll, I'll present that. Another is their understanding that the New Testament teaching, quote, rules out an earthly millennial kingdom following Christ's return because the New Testament reveals clearly, end quote, that all of the end time events are concurrent with each other. That is, they're happening at the same time. Uh, and that quote is from Robert Strimple. Uh, and lastly, a strong argument is found in their understanding of a non-sequential temporal relationship between Revelation 19, 11 to 21 and 21 to 6. And that's probably going to be the most complicated argument, but I want to present it because it kind of will give you a taste into how to or how many amillennialists sort of approach Revelation as a whole, but definitely that passage specifically. 
Uh, and these arguments I'm going to present in that order that I just I just showed you. Okay, so the first the first argument is the interpretation of Old Testament prophecy. So all millennials they believe that quote though many Old Testament prophecies are indeed to be interpreted literally, many others are to be interpreted in a non-literal way. End quote. And I believe that that's Anthony Ho Hoikma. Yes. And I, like I said, I don't know how to say his last name, but I've read a couple of books by him and he's really, really good. Anyways, he suggests that the difficulty in approaching or interpreting uh, prophecies is figuring out which is to be interpreted literally and non-literally, which is a major reason for uh, so many different opinions on Old Testament prophecy fulfillment in New Testament times and in our times. He illustrates this difficulty by going to Isaiah 65, 17 to 25. And from this text, he argues that there's no indication in the text that there is a shift from speaking about the new heavens and the new earth to speaking about the millennium period. Uh, to say this, he takes a non-literal approach to the language of people dying at an old age because of the clarity of the surrounding context. So he's interpreting uh, the language that a premillennialist would probably interpret literally based on the surrounding context. And the the premillennialists, they would probably leave room, or they do leave room, generally speaking, for the millennium, for this passage to be speaking about millennium conditions. And I, I talked about that a little bit in the last last video. Uh, it's also important to note that amillennialists ground their interpretive method, methods in principles that the New Testament uses in interpreting prophecy rather than simply what seems logical. Strimple, he sums up this point well when he says that, quote, Christians are accustomed to viewing the Old Testament sacrifices and feasts and ceremonies as being types, that is, teaching tools pointing forward to Christ. Uh, so why should... The land of Canaan, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, the throne of David, the nation of Israel itself not be understood, and this is key, using the same interpretive insight that we use in interpreting the sacrifices and ceremonies, end quote. So in other words, amillennialists, they're going to argue that the New Testament gives us an authoritative sort of how-to guide on how we are to understand elements of Old Testament prophecies. So they're going to argue that since the New Testament tells us how to interpret Old Testament, certain Old Testament prophecies, not all, but certain ones, uh, and understand types and type fulfillment in the New Testament, then we should use these same methods that the New Testament authors essentially lay out before us for many other prophecies that are not, uh, that could be fulfilled in a similar way. And by using this method of interpretation, this leads them to the conclusion that, quote, both Jesus and his body, the church, constitute the true Israel in and for whom all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment, end quote. So in other words, the church is the fulfillment of Israel, and the promises made to Israel as a nation are now fulfilled in the church. The significance that this conclusion has specifically for the millennium discussion 
uh, is that it leads an amillennialist to understand that since the promises made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, then there is no need or room for a future earthly kingdom, where the promises that have been left unfulfilled in the Old Testament will be fulfilled during the millennial reign of Christ. They're already fulfilled. There's no more period that's needed for them to be fulfilled. Specifically, the uh, the land promises, the promises made to the ethnic people of Israel. If they're uh, if they're understood or understood to be fulfilled in this interpretive uh, manner, basically a spiritual fulfillment is, I think, a good way to say it. Then they don't need to be fulfilled literally in the millennium kingdom because they're already already have been or are being fulfilled now. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't leave room open for fulfillments in the new heavens and the new earth, but uh, I, I guess it's better to say the new creation. But their interpretive framework does not require or suggest a millennial kingdom. And that that right there kind of shows you how this is just kind of bigger it's bigger than just revelation bigger than just revelation 20 premillennialists they're going to disagree obviously with generally disagree with uh how an amillennialist understands old testament prophecy so they're probably going to argue that the claim that they are using the same principles that the new testament teaches is unwarranted and this i think is because a premillennialist does not think that it's proper to take a principle that appears to be taught from the way a new testament author sees fulfillment of a type or a prophecy and then use that same method to understand other prophecies if it's not signaled in the text itself whether that's implicitly or explicitly so in other words if the New Testament author indicates that a prophecy should be understood in a non-literal manner, then it is to be taken for what it says with respect to its grammatical and historical context. An amillennialist, they're, they're much more inclined to take a principle that is suggested in a fulfillment in one area and then apply that interpretive principle in another area where there's no explicit warrant or suggestion that the principle should be used. And this is a clear divide between two camps. I think that's really, really important to notice. Uh, and then post-millennialists, they're going to respond to this, and I think that they'd agree with certain aspects of how the amillennialist understands Old Testament prophecies. But it seems that post-millennialists, they're going to argue that an amillennialist, they stop short in their understanding of many prophecies. So, for example, uh, Gentry, he argues that if Strimple, that is, a, a Gentry, he's a post-millennialist, and then Strimple, he's a, a millennialist. He says if, if he were to follow, if the amillennials were to follow his exegetical direction, then he would become a post-millennialist on his view of Isaiah 2, Ezekiel 47, Psalm 2. And I'm not going to look at those. But you can stop and look at those uh, if you'd like. But in any case, this is primarily because Strimple seems to admit that these prophecies are being fulfilled now. But, quote, this is a Gentry quote, he cuts short his exegetical inquiry before realizing the force of the glorious historical hope expressed therein, end quote. So we're going to look more at this when we look at the post-millennial position. But I think the important point to notice is that they're basically just going to say that uh, amillennialists are stopping short in their understanding of prophecy fulfillment. 
The second argument for the amillennialist that I think is very strong is the idea that the New Testament rules out an earthly millennial kingdom. The New Testament, it rules out an earthly millennial kingdom. So amillennialists, they not only believe that the New Testament does not teach a future millennial kingdom, but that it rules out an earthly millennial kingdom following Christ's return. Because the New Testament reveals clearly that the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of believers, the resurrection of the unjust or unbelievers, uh, judgment for everybody, and the end, and the new heavens and the new earth, and the inauguration of the final kingdom of God are all concurrent events. They're all happening at the same time. Therefore, the New Testament, it doesn't leave room for a millennial period after Christ's return. So basically, if all these things are happening at the same time, then when is the millennium? So there isn't one. That's, that's their reasoning. That's how they understand this. The resurrection of believers and unbelievers occur at the same time. And to prove this, Strimple walks through some New Testament texts that need to be briefly mentioned. Um, I also, I, I just want you to notice I'm not going to Revelation 20 for this. I do not think that they have a strong argument there, but I do think they have really a really strong case from some other passages in the New Testament that really have to be dealt with from a premillennialist perspective and a postmillennialist perspective, um, though this falls more in line with a postmillennialist perspective. Anyways, in John 5, 28 to 29, uh, there's the phrase, a time, at least in the NIV, uh, a time is mentioned when all the dead will be raised and then the explanation of who that all is, is both those who have done good and those who have done evil. That would be the righteous and or believers and unbelievers, essentially. So I just want to read that verse real quickly. And I, I'm pretty sure that I looked at this one in the last, uh, the last video as a response to the premillennialist position um, for the two resurrections. But anyways, let's just look at it. Uh, John 5, 20, 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So as I said before, you can see that a time is mentioned when all the dead will be raised. And then the group that encompasses the word all is those who have done good and those who have done evil. So this supports the idea that there's no time uh, in between these resurrections and therefore it supports the amillennialist understanding that there are not two physical resurrections and that there is not a millennium period between those resurrections. Another passage is Acts 24:15. Paul says that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And I want you to notice how it's a resurrection and not resurrections, plural. It's singular. We also see in John 5 that same same concept. It's a time, not times, plural. So based on this strimple, he argues that the most natural reading of these passages is that there's one resurrection to be expected. I think that's a strong argument. Uh, another passage that rules out a millennium period is Second Thessalonians 1, 5-10, which seems to teach that the, the twofold judgment of blessing for God's people and then punishment for unbelievers will occur at Christ's second coming on that day. Uh, and in quotes, that day, that's, that's in the verse. Um, this means that all of these events will occur at the same time. That is, that day. 
Shrimp will also argues from Romans eight seventeen to twenty three, saying that Paul is teaching that at Christ's coming, not a millennium later, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and come to enjoy a glory that is likened to the glorious freedom of the children of God. So at Christ's second coming, uh, the creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That doesn't sound like a millennium period. Lastly, uh, Strimple argues that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-26, the then in verse 24 does not indicate an extended period of time, but rather that it must be that of immediately then. So this is based on, so I, anyways, I, I went through this passage a little bit last time. And I said that the then actually, from the premillennialist perspective, the then actually does refer to a temporal uh, temporal time period, essentially. And Strimple is basically arguing that it doesn't mean that there's necessarily uh, a time in between the uh the occurrences whatever those were I, I can't remember specifically but it's immediately then so based and and he bases this argument on the uh the broader context that paul's letter and the new testament show us that the end uh and christ's second coming cannot be separated so those are the two events um the end and christ's second coming so he's saying that they're just happening at the same time and the word then really means immediately then, not then as in later then. Uh, and it's also grounded on the idea that the adverb does not necessarily indicate extent of time, but instead that the context determines the length of the interval marked by the adverb, which he suggests is immediate. That's exactly what I've been saying. So this this supports his case because it means that there is not a period of time between the resurrection of believers and unbelievers, which indicates that there is no millennium period or millennial period. So when this evidence is taken together, I think that it pre presents a pretty strong argument that the New Testament does rule out an earthly millennial kingdom. Uh, so how would a premillennialist respond to this? So they would basically disagree that the New Testament rules out an earthly millennial kingdom, obviously. Blazing argues, and Blazing, he's a, uh, he's a premillennialist, he argues that if the text that's Texts that Strimple presents are understood in the proper context that a sequence fulfillment is possible. When it comes to John 5, 28 to 29, Blazing argues that there is an hour in which all, and that's a time, in which all will be resurrected. But 1 John 2, 18 indicates that now is the last hour. So if, if the, quote, eschatological hour can be extended over 2,000 years, it's not impossible that a thousand years might transpire between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust, end quote. Also, Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 5 to 10 speaks of several events that will happen, quote, in that day, end quote. But the day of the Lord is not an instantaneous event in Scripture. Uh, as for Romans 8, there is... Nothing that prevents the glorification of creation from taking place in stages, while Strimple is saying it must take place in a one-time event, basically. Uh, more could be said on the other passages that Strimple presents, but the point is that the New Testament does leave room for an earthly millennial kingdom from a premillennialist understanding. 
there are alternative understandings of each of the passages he presented, uh, and they kind of have to be handled individually, really, before – and more time has to be given to him is basically what I'm saying. As for postmillennialists, they see the end-time events happening at the same time. They would generally agree with what amillennialists argue here, so there's no need to rebut this point. A point that I just want to mention here, I think it's important, and I think it, it fits in with this, is that uh, premillennialists, they seem to come to revelation and let revelation uh, speak for itself and then go back through uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament and think, oh yeah, that speaks to that period. The Old Testament, oh yeah, that speaks to that period. That fits in with this. Uh, so they'll go to Revelation, and then they'll have everything else fit in with that, and I think they do it consistently. And I'm millennialist, I think they're very consistent also, but in my basic understanding of this, I think that they generally will go Old Testament, New Testament, then just Revelation's just there, and then they go to the New Testament, like, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't fit with what we're seeing with Old Testament fulfillment, Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in the New Testament, then they're going to say the same thing about the, the New Testament doesn't seem to leave room open for this millennial period. Therefore, it can't mean that. Now, I know they're not going to necessarily say that, but that just that's that's my inclination is that because because they're coming at it. Old Testament, New Testament and then Revelation rather than letting Revelation speak back in. um it seems that I, I need to be careful with my words, but it, they're 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 having revelation fit in with their framework rather than letting revelation speak for itself and fitting that in with the framework, um, fitting that in with a framework of understanding the rest of the Bible. I I, I probably need to be more careful with my words there, but uh, that's that's my inclination on on when I'm comparing the two approaches, at least in, in a very simple, simple way. Anyways, uh, the, the last argument that I want to mention is, I ended the video by accident, so we're just going to resume here. The last argument that I want to mention on the, from the amillennials perspective, this is the most heady one for sure. But this one is going to be from uh, Revelation itself, specifically Revelation 20. Um, but this argument is that there's a uh, there's not a sequential temporal relationship between Revelation 19, 11 to 21 and Revelation 21 to 6. I think that this is a really strong argument and the guy who made it is really, really smart. Uh so I, I I want to take my time on it a little bit, uh, and you're gonna have to probably pay attention a little bit closer than you have been because this is it's just it's a little hard to follow. I'm gonna try and make it simple, but there are just points that you have to remember as you more move forward through it. But in any case, um, in his commentary on Revelation, uh, Gregory Beale or G.K. Beale he presents a compelling case that there isn't a sequential relationship between Revelation 19 and 20. Um, he says that, and the, well, the reason why he says that is because the word for and, which is Kai, 
can be used to indicate either historical sequence or visionary sequence. Okay, so the word and can be used to indicate either historical sequence or visionary sequence. The question for us, right, in Revelation 20, I'm pretty sure in Revelation 20 verse 1, you see Chi Adon, or and I saw, right? We went over that a little bit in the last one. And I saw. So we're asking the question is, does the Chi or the and in Revelation 20 indicate a continued historical sequence? Or does it function as a general transition between visions? And Beale, he's going to argue that it functions to introduce a vision that goes back, quote, before the time of the final judgment in history, which was just narrated in 1911, that is chapter 19, 11 to 21, end quote. So in other words, he argues that Revelation 20 actually occurs before the time of Revelation 19, 11 to 21. So if that's the case, it can't be sequential, right? If Revelation 20 happens before 1911 to 21, then it's not a sequential relationship, at least temporally. So to come to this conclusion, and this is where it gets a little tough, uh, he says that elsewhere in Revelation, when the word and or chi is used, or is directly followed by an angelic descent or ascent, quote, without exception, it introduces a vision either suspending the temporal progress of a preceding section to introduce a synchronous section or reverting to a time anterior to the preceding section, end quote. So in in other words, what he's saying is that when the word chi, or I'm just going to use chi from here out, when the word chi is used, and is followed by an angel descending or ascending, then it's introducing a vision that either suspends the temporal progress of a preceding section to introduce a section that is occurring at the same time as the previous one, right? So it's either introducing something that's happening at the same time as the previous section, or it's reverting to a time before the preceding section, so he's just saying basically the same thing as I said before I presented this part of the argument. He's just saying that the word chi is either presenting something that's happening at the same time as a or a historical sequence, I guess you could say. But I think he means specifically at the same time uh, as a preceding section or it's going back before the preceding section. So on this basis... Uh, he he claims that there's solid evidence that the word functions either to introduce the visions, quote, synchronously parallel or temporally prior to 1911 to 21, end quote. But this must be decided based on the following context. So next step. So right now he's saying it's a vision and it's either something that's happening at the same time as the previous previous vision or it's happening before the previous vision and he's saying we have to come to or we have to uh decide this based on the following context we can't just make the decision without that so now we're going to look at the following context in the following context there are repeated allusions to Ezekiel 38 to 39 So he's going to argue that it's likely that it's a recapitulation of uh, 1917 to 21 because 
19.17-21 alludes to the same passage as, I believe it's Revelation 27-11, or 7-10. It's either 7-11 or 7-10, I'm not exactly sure on that. But anyways, building off of this, he says, quote, if 21-6 precedes the time of 27-10 and 19-17-21 is temporally parallel to the battle in chapter 27-10, then 21-6 is temporally prior to the battle in chapter 19-17-21, end quote. I mean, his argument is crazy. And But anyways... What he's saying is that there's contextual evidence to suggest that the vision in 21-6 is temporally prior to the battle in 1917-21. Because uh, the the verses in chapter 27-10 recapitulates that battle. So 27-10 and 1917-21 are describing uh, the same thing, right? And that passage in between is actually the thing that comes before 27 to 10. And if it comes before 27 to 10, then it comes before 19, 17 to 21. Uh, so therefore, he's going to argue that the Kai, right? Because we just looked at the following context and the following context suggests that they're uh, 27 to 10 and 20, or 19, 17 to 21 are uh, describing the same event because they're both alluding to Ezekiel 38 to 39. I believe that they're alluding in a very similar way too. So it's not just that there are random allusions to that passage. Anyways, uh, the Kai therefore introduces a temporally prior time rather than a chronological sequence. So all that to say is that there is no sequential temporal uh, relationship between 19... 17 and 21 and 21 to 6. And that, I mean, that matters a lot for this view. That's why I wanted to present this. And I think it's a strong argument and it's very, very thought out. I'll respond to it in a minute. But I want to make another point. Um, and this one's a little bit less heady uh, that backs up the non-sequential chronological relationship between chapters 19 and 20. And th- this one's so simple. It's so simple and I, I actually really like it. But it's that quote, it makes no sense to speak of protecting the nations from deception by Satan in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, after they have just been both deceived by Satan and destroyed by Christ at his return, end quote. So he's going to argue that it makes no sense that there could be any survivors after, quote, Christ's absolute victory over them, end quote. Because in chapter 19 and 21, it says that the rest were killed. The rest. That's the rest of the unbelievers. And premillennialists, they're going to agree with this. But it's a, it's a good argument. It's like, why would uh, he have to be bound um, so that he can no longer deceive the nations? If there aren't any other nations, because they've just been slaughtered. Sam Storms uh, actually makes a really good, like, kind of snarky point on this. Uh, it's, just, it's just good. It, and it sums us up. Basically, he's saying... How could he, uh, that is Satan, be deceiving the nations that had just been slaughtered? Then, quote, they don't exist, end quote. I, I like that. I think that's good. Uh, so building from these points, Beale holds to an amillennial interpretation that, quote, the millennium 
is inaugurated during the church age by God's curtailment of Satan's ability to deceive the nations and to annihilate the church, end quote. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to explain that quote just a little bit because I think this is really important for the amillennialist view. So they're going to say that when Satan's bound, the premillennialists will say, yeah, he's literally bound. His power is no longer being felt in in the world. But they're going to say that Satan, an millennialist is going to say that Satan was bound the moment that Christ um, Christ died on the cross and. At that moment when Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the redeemed, um, or those who he would redeem and was redeeming. Um, he binds Satan in that moment. I'm not sure if it would be when he's resurrected uh, or when he sends. I'm not exactly sure the exact time of that. But somehow that's when Jesus does the binding, or that's when the binding of Satan occurs. And from that point on, whether it's Jesus dying on the cross, whether it's him uh, being raised from the dead, or whether, whether it's from the point of him ascending and reigning, uh, Jesus is reigning in the hearts of believers in the world today. That's, that's how he's reigning. Um, and basically... Satan's ability to completely annihilate the church is just gone because Jesus is reigning in the hearts of believers and it will most definitely succeed. So Satan's ability to deceive the nations is gone, but they understand it to be in the sense that uh, Satan can't stop the spread of the gospel. But he still has some power in this world. He's still around, right? He's still, uh, he's still prowling around like a roaring lion, right? He's still, his presence is still there, just not in the sense that he can deceive the nations, in the sense that he can't stop the gospel from succeeding in its spread throughout the nations. I think that's an important point. That's why I mention it here, uh, but I also want to mention that um, this this interpretation of this passage it flows from the interpretive framework, right, of approaching Revelation in an idealistic manner that sees much of Revelation representing and speaking to the present church age. Uh, in light of this, amillennialists they're going to see re recapitulation occurring regularly throughout the apocalypse and revelation 20 is simply another example of recapitulating the present church age up to the final battle uh which in their view is considered the millennium age where christ has been bound or where christ has bound satan through his victory on the cross and is reigning in heaven and on earth through his church uh that's that's really important it's really important to know that's kind of the amillennial view summed up. And I think that uh, this is kind of, this is really important, right? Understanding the non-sequential uh, understanding of Revelation 19 to 20 because it sets the foundation for understanding Revelation 21 to 10 uh, simply as another example of recapitulation revelation, which leads to the understanding that the millennium reign or millennial reign 
uh, is a spiritual reality during the church age. It just it helps them fit it into their interpretive framework. It works. It's logical. It fits, and they have biblical a biblical warrant to do so. I think they have to work very hard to do it, but they they do it. Uh, but anyways. Got to move on. The premillennialist rebuttal to this would be strong and sharp disagreement. And this is, I mean, as I said in the first video, it flows from a more literal and chronological reading of Revelation. So I specifically want to, uh, want to respond to Beale's point with the, with the Kai being used um, and directly followed by an angelic descent or ascent, and he says, quote, without exception, it introduces a vision either suspending the temporal progress of a preceding section to introduce a synchronous section or reverting to a time anterior to the preceding section, end quote. And I, I, I remember when I first read that argument, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to become an millennialist. And then, uh, and then I just thought about it a little bit, and I'm like, you know what? Um, it, it, it appears to be a really strong point, especially with, uh, I mean, the guy's wicked smart, and he uh, he presents the argument really, really well, and I think it's a really good argument, at least from my perspective. But the, the one thing that needs to be taken into account is the fact that this claim is made based on Beale's understanding of Revelation as a whole. And that's vital. That's vital. Because he understands Revelation as a whole to be extremely, extremely symbolic. So would a premillennialist, but um, extremely symbolic. The genre is primarily apocalyptic or uh, apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular circular letter. I think that's how he how he... Uh, defines the genre of revelation and and he also sees it as cyclic uh, rather than so his whole outline of revelation is very very different than the way that a futurist uh, or someone who sees the book as primarily prophetic sees it so where where Beale is going to see that Kai functioning in that way always uh, right what, what does he say without exception introduces a vision either doing this or doing that, introducing something that's happening uh, at the same time or introducing something that happened before. He's doing that based off of his entire framework and outline of Revelation. But someone else, someone who who approaches the book in a uh, in a futuristic way, they're gonna say, "Hey, hey, hey wait! It doesn't do that without exception." Maybe some, some premillennialists. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to read the arguments, right? I'd have to see how a, a lot of different premillennialists understand. Uh, I'd have to look at all the different examples of this. But I'm, I'm just making an educated guess that a premillennialist wouldn't agree with this, especially someone who uh, premillennialists generally read it in a more literal and futuristic way, because they're going to say. It doesn't, without exception, introduce something either suspending or proceeding, because they generally see it as playing forward. Revelation as moving forward, temporally, chronologically, 
sequentially. So when he says that it could introduce something that's preceding, um, I don't think that that would hold up. And I'm specifically thinking about the telescopic uh, outline of Revelation where they see the, I can't remember, trumpets, seals, uh, and then bowls. I can't remember the order of it, but the seventh one is filled with the other seven and the other seven with, with the other seven. And it kind of just plays out that way. Uh, and uh, and Beale doesn't hold to that outline. So he, all I'm saying is that this only works within a certain outline of Revelation and seeing that word function in that way, I, the argument is really strong, but uh, every case would have to be handled individually, and it's and you'd have to buy into the way he approaches the genre, the way he the way he interprets like, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and and Revelation to to be able to start humoring it at the very least. I just think it's funny. Uh, because it does sound really smart, but really it's just like, well, it's it's not without exception. And your understanding is without exception, but with someone who reads the book in a in a in a prof- primarily prophetic way, they're probably not going to agree with that at the very least. I think it, I so I just think it's an, an extremely biased statement to make. Um, so it, also in response to the critique that there wouldn't be any nations to deceive. And I, I love that critique. I think it's so good. And I, I wrestle with that for a little bit. But it's it's pretty easy to reconcile that um, by assuming that there are going to be believers who make it through the tribulation and then they enter into that millennium period and then they're going to have kids, right? If, if it's a thousand years, they're going to have kids. And those kids aren't guaranteed to be believers. Uh so, in the millennium, there there will be unbelievers, likely. And that's why you see uh, in Revelation, I think it's going to be around 28, maybe 27, uh, you see the nations as, uh, the people as the sands of the sea. I, I'm pretty sure on that. Uh, but there's a lot of unbelievers, essentially, again. And that's because I'm, I, I think they're repopulated in that in that period i think it's pretty easy to explain pretty easy to understand but from an all-millennials perspective it, it i think i think it's a strong point to make um and for the post-millennialists they don't even have to they don't have to respond to this there's no need to uh to rebut that point because i'm pretty sure that they generally agree maybe not every single one but i think very generally they they would agree with that so that's it. These are the amillennials arguments. I think they're all really strong arguments. I, I like them. I actually really like them. And I hope that they were helpful to show where this perspective is coming from. Uh, I want to recap them really, really quickly. First, amillennialists, they generally interpret Old Testament prophecy in a less literal manner. They claim that their interpretive approach is a principle that's taken from Scripture because the New Testament lays before them certain fulfillments of types and prophecies that are not necessarily strictly literal. Uh, you can see that in like uh, sacrifices, for example. Um, they use this method to approach other prophecies also, uh, even if there is no explicit warrant in that specific text. 
Second, uh, they're going to argue that the New Testament rules out Millennium Kingdom based on passages that suggest that the end times events all occur at the same time. If they occur at the same time, uh, then there is no room for a millennium period in between these events. Lastly, uh, they argue that there is a, a non-sequential relationship between Revelation 20 and 19. Uh, this leads them to con- the conclusion that what's happening in Revelation 21 to 6 precedes the time of Revelation 19, 17 to 21, which means that the passage in Revelation 21 to 6 can be understood as a spiritual reality in the present church age. And that's vital. The spiritual reality in the present church age. We're in the millennium today. The millennium, right? We're in the millennium today. It's the present church age and Christ is reigning on the throne and in the hearts of the believers. Uh, it must be noted that this is an entire framework of an approach to Revelation. And I've mentioned that in the past and I just repeated that a little bit now. And this is simply how they fit this into that entire framework. And I, I think it's it's pretty cool. Um, also, uh, I do think this this view has some really strong points, and each individual like really does need to wrestle with them. The issue it's a bit more complicated than it might seem, but I hope that you're beginning to see that it's not only bigger than Revelation 20. It's not only bigger than Revelation as a whole, uh, not only bigger than the New Testament as a whole, and it's bigger than the Old Testament as a whole. It's it's like an entire framework over the entire Bible that kind of comes together uh, and kind of reveals itself in Revelation 20. In any case, I, I want to thank you for listening, and I, I think I'm going to do another video in the next week on the post-millennial position. Um, that's my least favorite one, uh, but it'll be helpful to to look at. Um, I'm thinking that I might do a short wrap-up video to discuss how to move forward and some direct implications of holding to different views, just to sort of like conclude on the matter, because this is a really big topic, and I, I do think it's really helpful to see uh, like the really practical implications of holding to these different views. And a lot of it is just uh, like expectations for the future, that kind of thing. But expectations for the future is a pretty big thing. So I, I do want to look at the implications of that. So I might do a short video uh, in a few weeks to just wrap up this little series. But thank you for listening again. And hopefully I'll, I'll do another one in a week.